This podcast and its content are designed and intended to provide a place for conversation. Topics and advice covered in this podcast should not be taken as professional medical advice or emotional or spiritual counsel. If you or a loved one need professional help, they should seek a licensed professional. The views covered and discussed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of WCSG Radio or Cornerstone University. Ideas presented are not necessarily endorsed by WCSG Radio or Cornerstone University. All right, welcome to Through Rough Waters. It's a biblically-based mental health podcast presented by WCSG and supported by West Michigan Wellness Group. I'm your host, Zach Allen, and joining me is my co-host, Kevin DeCam. How are you, Kev? Great. It's good to be here again, Zach. And also joining us this episode from West Michigan Wellness Group is Nicole Freiling. Thanks for joining us, Nicole. Thanks for having me. So uh, Kevin and Nicole are part of West Michigan Wellness Group. We'll learn more about how you can get in touch with them later in the episode. Uh, They're a local therapy organization here in West Michigan with uh, plenty of therapists and locations. So if you listen to this podcast and it stirs something in and you want to see someone, uh, we would love to get you connected with West Michigan Wellness Group. So this episode marks the start of a series all about anxiety. Today, we're going to explore some specific promises from scripture about walking through anxiety. And we'll also unpack the science of what's actually happening in our brains when we feel anxious. So like last time, I want to start with scripture and I've picked three verses that have helped me through my anxiety journey over the past 20 years or so. And the first one is from Jesus. This is John 16 verse 33. Jesus says, I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. I love that verse because first, it's a guarantee of troubles. So you are not unique by going through something Jesus promised we will have trouble and that we can have our peace in Jesus. Uh, What do you guys think about that verse from John? Yeah, I love that not only does he tell us that we have the peace, but we also know with the Holy Spirit living inside of us, that same power that he uses to overcome the world, that we have that. Um, So when we feel like something is hard, like battling anxiety, we know that we have both his power and his peace. And I think you said this, Zach, in fact, we may even preface this a little bit in episode one, but this guarantee from Jesus that we will have trouble, uh, because so often when we're experiencing it, as we uh, busted the myths about last time, we can go to places like assuming that we've done something wrong, or there's something terribly wrong with us, that we're not good enough. Um, and yet, I think Jesus just dispels that right off the bat by saying, no, there, there will be trouble in this world. And then he, of course, leads us to the source of our assurance, as Nicole said. I wonder how many of the those feelings of I'm the only one going through this is because of social media and like Christian bubble of we're going to present that everything's fine. We're all happy. And like you only put like the best 5% of yourself out there. And uh, I love that Jesus gave us that promise. Another verse that has been super, super helpful to me, especially in the last season of my life, is 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. And I love that that verse starts with humble yourselves. You have to admit that you are struggling with something, admit that you have problems, and give that anxiety to Jesus, because he promises that he cares for us. Those transitional words are so important too, right? That's um, something that I uh, was taught a while back that's been helpful to look for places in scripture where Jesus or or other writers use words like therefore, so, and because. And, uh, you know, he talks about that um, and he puts it right there. It puts the emphasis on him caring for us. Like the previous verse, it sets up that there will be difficulty and gives us instruction. But the point of it is to route us back to him as the source of our comfort. Yeah, and he's expecting that we have 
emotions that we have these anxieties because he is an emotional God and we're created in his image. Um, and so he, he wants that. He desires that relationship with us where we are taking those emotions to him. Our last verse that we'll explore, this goes back to the Old Testament, and this is a promise from Isaiah. This is Isaiah 40, verse 31. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. I love that word, renew. They will soar on wings like eagles. They'll run and not go weary. They'll walk and not be faint. And that's just a promise that when you do cast those anxieties on God, he, and you hope in him, he will renew your strength. You know, when I've gone through some of my deepest valleys, sometimes I feel like I'm a totally different person. That hope in the Lord renews old Zach. Like I can remember five years ago, Zach, I want to be that again. And by hoping in the Lord, he will renew that strength. That's a promise. Mm-hmm. And that the hope is in him, right? That he gets to do that renewing work in us, that it's not all up to us. We don't have to do it in our own strength. Again, we have that peace and that power from him um, to focus on what we can, but surrendering to him to do that work in us. Again, and and that we should expect that, right? Mm -hmm. There's the expectation built in. Uh, There wouldn't be a need to renew strength if there wasn't an expectation that we would somehow be losing it or, or be in a position where we feel that it has lost and so, yeah, just these are such great examples of redirecting uh, our perspective and shifting our locus of control, putting things back where they belong in the way that God designed them. Um, and anxiety knocks us off that base, right? I think we'll be talking more about that today. Yeah, And these are just three of so many verses and so many points in the Bible where God talks about anxiety. Like we talked about this in, in the first episode, Christians can tend to like bury mental health and just say, oh, I can pray it away. But it's woven throughout the Bible that as fallen humans, we will experience these things. And there's that hope all through the scripture. So I want to pivot to um, the meat of our episode here. And that is the science of anxiety. Now, I'm just some radio guy. I don't know anything about this other than Mm -hmm. that. I have anxiety. So I'm going to let you guys drive this segment. So Kevin, why don't you start with just kind of giving us an overview of what is actually going on in our brains when we're feeling anxious. Yes, and I'd love to be able to start here. I think it's so important to start um, with understanding what anxiety is before we proceed. In fact, by the very nature of anxiety, um, newsflash, it's uncomfortable. Right? It's, uh, it's very difficult to just sit with anxiety. It's one of the skills that we try to learn in therapy. Um, but we have to learn it because everything natural within us tells us to move or to change our situation. And I just believe that if we understand what anxiety is, why it was created within us, the purpose that it's meant to um, fulfill in our life, it it can be an important first step to being able to understand and therefore manage anxiety differently, as opposed to being afraid of it, right? Because it is so uncomfortable. Um, We have this natural instinct to move. And actually, when anxiety uh, escalates all the way into panic, it's really when we feel anxious And it's so uncomfortable that we feel anxious about how anxious we feel. And then we're anxious about feeling anxious about feeling anxious. And suddenly it spirals all the way to a point that we can't manage, right? And if you've never had a panic attack, that might be confusing. It might be difficult to understand. Um, But for those of us who have, and I see you nodding, and I know many listening uh, will know exactly what this is about, right? To be in that place that that ultimately feels helpless and very, very frightening. I would always 
characterize my season where I had panic attacks, where I'd be underneath my blanket hiding from the world, that it was a sneaky hate spiral. <laughs> where like, I hate this thing about myself and this, this, this. And it's just like, it feels like you're circling the drain and you can't yeah. get out of it. Absolutely. And so I think the more we know and understand about what it is that's happening, the more equipped we can be to begin to address that. Um, and as believers, especially, I think appreciating and respecting and, and having hope in the fact that um, this thing we call anxiety really has its roots in a system that God has created within us on purpose, for a purpose, with purpose, right? This anxiety was meant to serve us, knowing that we would be living as broken people in a broken world surrounded by so much brokenness. It's inevitable, as all of these verses point to, that we will experience some level of difficulty uh, maybe even anxiety and ultimately fear. There are things to fear in this world. Uh, one of the things that God and I are going to have to work out when we meet face to face, one of many questions I have, maybe the first is going to be why when throughout scripture, he or his son, Jesus, uh, refers to fear. It almost is a very simple command to fear or not, right? Just be not afraid. Um, and unfortunately, again, that's one of the things that as Christians, we, we kind of mess up. We, I, I think that's where the roots of some of these myths come from, these ideas that if we are then afraid, since God said not to be, we must be doing something wrong, right? There's something wrong with having anxiety. Um, but again, anxiety is normal. God is a God of emotions. Jesus, I believe if we read scripture and try to understand who he was as we read it or, or follow a depiction of it, we'll understand that he was a very passionate and emotional human, right? And so uh, it can't be sin. In fact, I think it it's it's really important. I usually encourage people to think of anxiety as fear's little cousin, right? Because anxiety is very broad and vague and we don't always understand it, but fear is pretty straightforward. And, and I even sometimes exaggerate examples um, because it makes it very obvious, like we did in our, in our first episode when we talked about breaking an arm. When we make it very tangible, we don't tend to doubt it or misunderstand it quite as much. So the same with fear, right? Nicole, Zach, and I are all sitting here very calmly for the most part, maybe a little jitter about having the microphone on, but for the most part, here we are and everything's okay and everything's kind of resting within our system. But as we sit here, and I'll go to one of my favorite examples, if a grizzly bear kicked in that glass door of the studio with a gun in each hand, <laughs> right, and, and, and came towards us intending us harm, we shouldn't just continue to remain calm, we need a lot of things to happen very, very quickly and much more quickly than most of the systems within our brain operate, right? So God in his infinite wisdom gave us these amazing systems that if we understand them, we can understand the purpose that they have and, and what to do with them, right? So if we think about those fear systems and, and I can really nerd out, I kind of warned you about this beforehand, I'll try to keep it brief uh, and, uh, and manageable because I get excited about the science of all of this stuff. I studied biology before psychology. Um, and I love to know how these systems work and, and the implications for us. But if we just simplify it and just talk about the amygdala, right? So take a journey way to the center of the brain. There's this tiny little almond shaped, um, set of, of, uh, neurons, really this area and the lizard brain. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Some people refer to it as the lizard brain, uh, or the primitive brain, right? This very basic function within our brain, uh, whereby we have a gift and that was perfect timing. I'm going to call it Providence. As I said that outside the studio door, this just happened. Someone just walked past the studio door and it, it did what, Zach? Did you notice? 
kick the light on. Oh, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you were paying I, this attention. This is my office. I'm <laughs> so used to that happening. <laughs> yes. Right. So this building, like many modern or recently updated buildings, um, have these um, light switches. Right. That it's a it's a sensor and a switch. Uh, I'm old, so you know when I was a kid, you had to do all the work of reaching over and turning it on with your hand. And I assume there's some kind of hygiene benefit here, but um, it's just a sensor and a switch. It senses motion, and when the motion is sensed, it turns on a light. That's it. Pretty basic, right? So if we think of the amygdala in in the exact same way, it's a sensor and a switch, but a little more sophisticated in that what it is sensing is perceived threat. And then what it turns on is not as basic as just a light bulb. It's actually a whole uh, series of systems designed to prepare us for action. This is like the fight, flight, or freeze, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. And so there's, uh, you know, our autonomic nervous system kicks in, uh, our limbic system, and our body jumps into action. And this system is designed for efficiency, right? When the grizzly bear kicks the door in, we don't have to stop, think about it, discuss what we should do. We don't have time for that. We'll be lunch by then, right? We should just get into action. And so whether we are running or fighting, whether we're choosing to take on the threat or get away from it, the basic responses of fight or flight, uh, freeze is a little bit different. We'll get into that in a second. Um, but we need our body to be prepared, right? So I'll skip all the science too on what that looks like and what happens. But if we think all the way back to where we started with anxiety, we realize that it's essentially the same thing within our system, right? We are experiencing something that causes us to believe that we are in some sort of danger, and then we are preparing for action, right? So that's why we do some of the same things in both scenarios, whether I'm anxious or afraid, which are very, very similar. Uh, I'll breathe heavy, I'll sweat, uh, my, my muscles will tighten up, um, and not to mention all the really fancy things happening uh, you know, within our body in terms of hormones and the release of adrenaline and cortisol and norepinephrine and uh, and dopamine even, right? Which is why we get that little buzz in these situations yeah. as well. I remember sitting in my very first therapy session and I told the guy sitting across from me, I feel like I'm being hunted for sport. Mm, there like, you go. That's what it felt like every single day. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and we talked about the brain, that part of the brain and those systems within our brain being wired for efficiency because of how necessary that is the payoff. The cost then is that they are not always, uh, very accurate or what I say is they're prone to inaccuracy, right? Which is why we have these startle reflexes and why we can sort of purposely kick these systems up for the fun of it, like roller coasters and horror movies, right? Where we kick all mm-hmm. the same systems in and we sort of get the, we enjoy that little buzz. But at, uh, before long, we realize that we're safe and it settles back down again and we can move on, right? When we're experiencing anxiety, it's because this trigger, this sensor is going off all the time and it's activating this system. And one of the challenges, but also one of the opportunities, one of the things we can do something about is using the other part of our brain to recognize that the danger in that moment is just a perceived threat and, and possibly not a real threat. And when we make that assessment, then we can do something different, right? If the grizzly bear kicks the door in, I would just follow your body's impulses, utilize that system that God created you and either to choose to take it on or get out of here. I, for one, will be getting out of here, right? You don't have to be the fastest person, just faster than the slowest, exactly. right? <laughs> yeah, so uh, love you guys, but uh, I'll be out of here, right? Um, and I'll just follow that system. But so often what, when we're experiencing anxiety, what's happening is that our amygdala is um, responding to things that it perceives as a threat, intending to do us the favor of activating these systems 
in order to keep us safe when really we already are safe. And if we can stop and we can slow down and we can calm those systems within our bodies, and Nicole can share a little bit uh, about some of the things that we do in our office uh, to help people with that, then we can choose a different outcome and we can have a different perspective on what it is that's going on before it spirals out of control. Yeah, so to give a more a kind of concrete example of that, so the the way my anxiety almost always manifests itself is social anxiety. I don't know what it is. I will unpack my story later in the season for stuff that happened to me when I was growing up that kind of built this anxiety. But something in my brain tells me if I'm in a group of people, they're all staring at me and they're judging me and they all hate me. And I just want to collapse into a black hole and go away. Like, and if that were true, you should. Right. If you really were in that kind of danger, that part of your brain is actually doing its job well. Again, it's just not very sophisticated. So it doesn't understand the distinction between beginning to feel uncomfortable and even reading those signs within your body, which is how it starts to compound. Um, and uh, maybe some other lesser fear, um, you know, like a, um, I just had a memory that I left the stove on, may or may not be on, right? But you get that quick flash sitting in church, like, oh no, maybe I did. Mm -hmm. um, and it activates the same system and a real live tangible thing. It's just not that sophisticated. In fact, there's some interesting research out there that would say it, it even, um, the amygdala can even read things within the body like viruses and being sick as a perceived threat. And it's some, why sometimes we experience some of these symptoms around that as well. So, Again, the key is to understanding that that's a normal process. It's a natural process. It's actually a very helpful process when needed. But the, the very um, attributes that make it uh, efficient also make it somewhat unsophisticated in distinguishing the difference between whether a threat is real or not and how serious the threat is. Its job is just to get all the systems going. So we've heard a lot from you, Kevin, about kind of the the science. This is Amygdala 101 with uh, Professor DeCam. But Nicole, you're here with us today because part of your job at West Michigan Wellness Group is to sit in your office with people who are experiencing anxiety. And you are an expert at walking them through what this means and what you can do about it. So why don't you share just a little overarching view of what it looks like when someone sits down in your office and says, I'm anxious and I don't know how to stop it. Yeah. Well, I'm thankful that Kevin gave us some background on just the science, because I think there is even just some comfort in knowing that we are created in this way to have this response for a reason. Um, so that we're not broken. Uh, really, God is an amazing creator in the way he's created us to try to keep ourselves safe. So I appreciate that. I also appreciate the verses that we shared just to again, normalize that we should have emotions, um, that emotions in and of themselves are not good or bad, um, that it's the way that God created us. So I think one thing is to not necessarily come into it with a goal of getting rid of anxiety. Um, it may be something we all struggle with, um, whether it's anxiety or depression or anger, or whatever that emotion is that's maybe harder for you to manage. Um, but we can learn to change our relationship to it. And I think when we do that, um, we decrease the intensity of that. And we start to use our bodies and our minds and our, our spirits as a resource rather than fighting against um, what just is naturally happening inside of us. We also, if we kind of take a step back and just look at emotions in general, 
changing the way that we just relate to emotions um, in general and thinking that, again, emotions in and of themselves are not good or bad, and that each of us come to this point in our life with what I call an emotion story. So we have received messages, maybe growing up or maybe in our relationships about how we view emotions. Maybe we were taught that emotions are not bad or that are emotions are bad. Um, And maybe we were in a home where emotions weren't talked about, or it wasn't safe to express that. And so I think it's important to know that about ourselves is what is the story that I'm bringing in, as I'm trying to do this work, because we may need to overcome or relearn some different things. Um, But generally, I like to start um, with some of that brain stuff, but also thinking about the emotion cycle and just how emotions come. Um, so typically, as Kevin talked about, there's something that triggers an emotion in us that might be something that is in our control. It might be something outside of our control. It might be an event. It might be a person or a place. Something is triggering something inside of us. Um, and from that, we have some thoughts about that. Um, and then we have these emotions that are from that, from those thoughts. And with that, we have, we feel that in our bodies. So a lot of times, um, Kevin was talking about some of what we feel in our bodies when we have anxiety in particular. Um, And then with all of that, we have some sort of response to that, some sort of behavior. Um, It might be an active behavior. It might be a withdrawal behavior. Um, But we respond in some way to that. A lot of times this happens very quickly and we don't know what that cycle or that pattern looks like for us. And so part of what I like to help people do is to just understand how this works and then to start to notice what those patterns look like in themselves. And so we can keep track. Uh, Maybe it's with a log or a journal. And what are some, when did you notice some intense emotion, um, in particular anxiety? And what did each of those parts of that cycle look like for you? And starting to look for patterns, common triggers, common thought patterns, the emotions, what they feel like in your body, and how you tend to respond. Because I think the self-awareness, it's hard to change what we don't notice. And so to notice what those patterns are, to increase that self-awareness so that we can approach it differently. Uh, Part of the hardest part of the cycle is noticing those thoughts. But if we think about how it works, it's not the actual event or thing or person that makes us anxious, it's how we process it. So the example that I always use, uh, my husband and I and our two girls love to go on vacations together. And a lot of times that brings us to a building with an elevator, like a hotel or a condo or something. And when we walk up to this elevator, I start to get anxious. And I start to have thoughts about, is that, are are we going to get stuck is it, are, is it not going to move? Is it going to break? How, what floor are we staying on? How long do I have to be on this elevator? And I start to feel anxious about that. And in my story is getting stuck in an elevator when I was seven in a high rise in Chicago by myself, right? So something's informing that. But I start to have these thoughts and I start to feel anxious and I start to look at are there stairs nearby I could take instead, right? And I start to have all of these feelings and body sensations. My husband, who's there with me, walks up to the same elevator and he's like, oh man, I hope we're staying on the top floor. I, I, I wonder what we're gonna do once we settle in our room. I wonder if I'm gonna meet someone on the elevator and make a new best friend, right? And he starts to feel really excited. So it's not the actual elevator that makes me anxious, it's how I process that. 
So getting really to the root of what our thoughts are and how we process that is a really important step. But a lot of times we might start with, how am I responding out of my anxiety? What What's going on in my body? We can start there and then we can kind of work towards working at the thoughts. As someone who's actually gone through this exercise when I started processing my anxiety, like I have a note that I to this day is in my phone that I update when I realize there's something new that triggers me, you will be amazed at the patterns that you find. Mm -hmm. Like you will be amazed if you spend the time and dive deep. It's like two or three things. That's it. Even though I felt this for years and years, it goes back to two or three things. Mm -hmm. And when you actually do the work, it becomes so much less intimidating. Yeah. And I like to um, encourage people to just use the word notice. So I notice that when I'm in this environment, this is how I feel. Or I notice that, oh, when I'm around this person, I tend to feel this way. So it's not that we're coming at this with a bunch of judgment or shame on ourselves for feeling or thinking a certain way, but we're just noticing patterns so that we can work to change. And so when we notice the patterns for ourselves where we get stuck, um, I think there's a few different things we could do. Um, There's lots of things we can do, and we work on that in therapy, but one of them is to just name the emotion itself, whether it's anxiety or something else. Um, I've heard the phrase name to tame. There's data that tells us that even just naming our emotion decreases the intensity of it. So again, even just saying something like, I notice I'm feeling anxious, that comes with such a different feeling than, oh my gosh, what's happening? Oh, oh my goodness, I'm feeling anxious. And right, rather than just saying, I notice that I'm feeling anxious. So naming those emotions. And then like we use that scripture, like bringing that to God, letting him know, inviting him into that story with us. Um, he desires that from us. And then if we think about that cycle and how emotions work, we can, there's an exit point at each point in the cycle. So we can learn our triggers and know. Um, We can think something different. We can learn a different way to uh, relate to our emotions and name that. We can take care of our bodies and respond to the physical symptoms that are happening. And we can choose a different response. So even though I'm anxious, when I see an elevator and I start to have those feelings, I can still choose to step on the elevator. Um, Or I can choose to adjust my thoughts differently with more truth. So I don't know how scientific this is, but the way this kind of plays out for me is, um, you know, in Lord of the Rings, when um, Gollum is fighting with himself, there's Gollum and Schmeagol and Gollum shows up and it makes Schmeagol so angry. Like when I start feeling anxious or depressed, I think it, I think of it as Gollum has come to visit me. <laughs> and in one of those, I think it's Return of the King, when he's having one of these internal fights with himself, he goes, leave now and never come back over and over and over again. And that's my name it and tame it. Like mm. when I see Gollum has come to visit me, I tell him leave and never come back. He still mm. comes back. But like <laughs> that, that power, that force of that little Gollum screaming that in Lord of the Rings, like that's the intensity that I attack those thoughts with. You know, Zach, I think that's why that scene and that character that you're describing there is something that we can all relate to, right? Because Lewis is talking about something universal there. We all have that within us. I think you're right. There is a scientific representation of that or a way to understand this through brain science. And it's what Nicole's getting at as well. So we have this amygdala, if we call that Gollum. Um, The only pushback I would maybe give you on that, Zach, is that sometimes we need Gollum too, right? Mm. (laughs) So if what we are remembering is something that does have the potential to harm us, then we need the Gollum voice to to step up, right? We need that voice to say, hey, this is bad. We need to take care of this. We need to get out of here. Um, 
I think it's a little more sophisticated than that in, in Gollum's or in uh, Lewis's representation. Um, but then the Schmeagel character, if you think of that as like the prefrontal cortex, and that's what um, Nicole is talking about as well. The thing that the part of our brain um, prefrontal cortex, just it's a fancy term, but basically just the center of the front of our brain, the most advanced part of our brain. Um, I'd like to believe maybe part of what God meant when he talked about creating us in his image is having the capacity to do the things that we can do because of that part of the brain. So if you think of all the things that we as humans do that other creatures with brains don't do, like language and processing emotion and the sophistication of memory and our executive functioning, uh, you know, just consider this every, every time you make an important decision, you're integrating things like memory and goals and your desired character, as well as how it fits with your immediate emotional state in order to make a decision that uh, leads you to where you want to be in the future, right? Uh, and, and so that's very important. It's very, very sophisticated. And we need that to make more accurate decisions about what to do. So Nicole, I love that you're talking about noticing, right? Because you're really exercising that part of your brain. The simple, pr more primitive amygdala part of your brain says, when you feel afraid, just fix it right? Mm -hmm. Get out of there, run, do, fight, freeze. Um, this is why we see um, substance abuse disorders so correlated with these kind of things because it, it removes us, quote unquote, from in the short term, uh, from what it is that we are experiencing. It's one of the things that's difficult in terms of working through this because in the short term, it quote unquote works. It just in the long term does not. And it robs mm -hmm. us of the ability to use ourself and develop the things like Nicole's talking about so that we can use our own self and other systems that God's given us to calm and to solve. And then ultimately to learn, right? Because our ability to learn is uh, it's just incredible if you think about it, right? So, um, and also, Nicole, I love that you talk about story. This all came from somewhere. That's mm -hmm. a good thing, too. It's another thing God built into these systems. The amygdala is located right next door and very closely connected to something called the hippocampus, which is central to our systems of, of memory, so that I don't have to relearn that a grizzly bear is dangerous every single time I encounter one. I can remember, and our body kicks this system in immediately and says, we've been here before. We had a thing we did. It was called running away, and it worked because we're alive. So let's pull that program and run it again in this situation, right? And again, if it's a grizzly bear, good, let it run. But if it's not, then we have that ability to slow down and to notice. And uh, you know, some of the things that Nicole talked about using your body to calm itself, using yourself as a tool to quiet those systems down and interrupt that feedback loop that wants to keep it going and instead invite God and invite peace and invite hope and invite a different response into the equation to write a new program so that we don't just have to respond the same way that we have before in a way that we may have kept us safe. Right. So again, we're not going to do your therapy right now, Zach, but I love that your, your vulnerability and willing to share something about social anxiety is something that a lot of people experience. And yes, probably deep, deep down, the amygdala uh, is experiencing and responding to the way you feel in a high social context as threatening. And so it's kicking off these responses, thinking that you must do something. And you may, and it may not be the worst idea. <laughs> we all do that sometimes, but you may have situations where you want to be able to remain present in a social situation. And so it's going to cause you to have to do these things and quiet that system down and say, it's okay. You may have, think you're doing me a favor and doing your job by helping me get out of here or solve
solve this, but I can actually just stay in notice and I can see how this is and I can, uh, I can determine whether there's another way for me to experience this and maybe a different response that suits me better in terms of my long-term goals. Yeah. And in regards to that retraining, I'm, I'm doing some quick math in my head. The first time I went to therapy was nine years ago and like it gets easier every time you encounter it because of the way the brain works. Like you're creating these new pathways. Like this happens to me. So I do this instead of I do this. And like, to be honest, I'm still terrified when I'm around people like God and his infinite sense of humor made me a broadcaster and a worship pastor. (laughs) So thousands of people listen to my voice and hundreds of people stare at me every Sunday, but like it gets better and better. The more you do the work, the more you go to your therapy, the more you do these practices, like it does get better and it does get easier. Yes. And that's because of neuroplasticity, right? Your, your brain is learning new pathways, literally, even though you have some of the same reflexive response, your brain is allowing you to, to stay in the situation and develop a different pattern around it, which is why there can be hope around things like anxiety. And important, an important thing to note too, like I've been doing this work for nine years. If I didn't go to a therapist, I would be exactly where I was nine years ago. Like that's the reason we're so excited. You're listening right now. And um, you're willing to explore this world of therapy because like we said last episode, if you break your arm, you still need a doctor to set your arm before it'll heal. It's not going to just do it on its own. So it's, it's important to actually do the work. Yep. And often you need perspective outside of yourself in that situation, right? Because when, when those impulses kick in, when you have that primitive response, it's very difficult to see outside of your own situation, which is, again, another function of the prefrontal cortex, something that God gave us uniquely that we can use. I can be in the situation that I'm in and ponder it at the same time, mm. right? So instead of just being here going through this podcast, while it's happening, I can think about the fact that I'm sitting here. And I can even be thinking about other things while remaining engaged. That's a highly sophisticated skill. And if we learn how to use it in a situation like this, it opens up so many more options than just me scared run, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which is about how the amygdala operates. Yeah, if we're curious Mm -hmm. about what's going on in our experience. Um, So in addition to noticing, I think being curious, right? So I, I notice that I'm feeling this way. I wonder where that's coming from. Did something, what triggered me? What am I experiencing? Is there a message that I'm carrying with me? Again, with your example of social anxiety, am I going back to a habitual way of thinking that I'm trying to overcome, right? You can, you can ask yourself a lot of questions and be curious. Um, I love that you guys are talking about the neural pathways and an analogy that I like to use uh, for all of us that live here in West Michigan, uh, that live on the beautiful lakeshore. Uh, my family and I love to go to Pentwater and we stay in a campground and we have to walk over the dune to go to the beach. And there's all those worn down paths in the dune grass, right? Mm-hmm. That people have taken over and over and over. And those are the paths we take, right? Cause they're easy. We can walk through without having to push away all the dune grass. Um, I kind of think of our brains like that. Um, They have these worn down pathways uh, because God has created our brains to be so efficient. But some of those patterns of thinking are not really serving us super well, right? They came from a place where it did serve us at some point, but maybe we're trying to rewire and rethink differently. Um, So if I decided one morning that I wanted to wake up and go to the beach and take a different path, it would be pretty difficult. I'd have to push the dune grass down. I might get cut a little bit by the dune grass. And the next day, if I tried to take that same path, I might be able to see it, but it'd still be a little bit difficult, right? But over time, I can create a new path and those old paths would grow over if I didn't take that path anymore. So I think it's, again, beautiful the way that God has created our brain, that he allows us to rewire things. And he can, again, he's the renewer. He he does that work with us. But there is hope that you can rewire those thoughts. 
So we're going to end this episode with a little uh, listener Q&A. If you've got um, some questions about the mental health world you'd love us to explore, you can go to wcsg.org, click on podcasts, and click on Through Rough Waters. There'll be a place for, where you can submit totally anonymously. We will not collect any data about you besides the words that you type in there. And uh, today's question is uh, a loved one in my life is very clearly depressed. They barely get out of bed or take care of themselves, but they refuse to acknowledge there's anything wrong. How can I encourage them to seek help? I can't go to therapy or to the doctor for them, but how can I help them? Um, I think there's a few things that we can do here. Uh, One first is to remember that you cannot work on someone harder than they want to work on themselves or that they're willing to do. And I know for those that are depressed, that can feel really hard, right? The things even that they know that they should do, it's really hard to do. So I think first is just validating that for them. Like, it seems like things are really heavy now. That must make life really difficult. Or I can see that things are hard. That makes a lot of sense that you would feel that way, right? So validating that experience for them, they'll feel seen and heard. And when we have relationship, we can have influence. And so maybe just strengthening that relationship, building that relationship in a deeper way will allow them to be maybe more receptive to ideas that you have. Um, And maybe it's not waiting for them to reach out and ask for help. Maybe it's um, just offering a meal. Hey, I know it's really hard for you to get dinner cooked every night. What if I bring dinner on Tuesday? Do you want pizza or Chinese? Right. And just bringing that that help again helps them to feel seen and heard so that, again, hopefully you can have some influence and impact on them. Yeah, I I think that's fantastic. And just just showing up, um, just being present Another throwback to episode one, we talked just briefly about Job's friends. Um, we did, what we didn't talk about was um, the, the historical and um, even to this day, this is a, um, a practice that we find in Jewish culture, um, the practice of sitting in Shiva, right? Shiva means seven, roughly translated, as I understand. Zach, I'm not a doctor or a theologian. So for all of you listening, give me grace as I'm trying to convey these thoughts. But the idea of sitting in Shiva, sitting to a point of completion, um, what I said last time and would call back here as well in a situation like the listener is is asking about um, being willing to show up as Job's friends first did. And what it says is when they saw his suffering from afar, they took on his countenance. They they took on the cultural expressions of that day of grief. They, they put ashes on their head. They tore their clothes. And for seven full days, they just sat next to him and did or said nothing. They were just willing to sit in it with them. Um, I think today we might talk about that as the um, ministry of witness or the ministry of presence, just how much it ministers to someone who is hurting to just show up and be willing to be in it with them without, and I think this is actually relevant to our conversation about anxiety today, it's often my own anxiety that leads me to want to either stay away and not get into that mess with them, or to when I get there, try to fix it. And I got to imagine maybe that's some of what happened in those later chapters in Job um, and for the thousands and thousands of years since then in human behavior, where when we show up, my discomfort with you suffering leads me to try to explain it or excuse it or give you a solution or uh, cheap advice um, or to try to push you to some place where you're not in that. And that can be well intended. There can be a loving thought in that. But if I'm willing to just be curious about why it is that you're suffering and to just notice that you're suffering with you, it, it 
frees you up to do the same thing, which as Nicole is saying is some of those powerful thing that we can do actually to try to fix it as opposed to our impulsive instinctive response to just fix it or get out of there. Yeah. And if you've never tried this sitting in Shiva before, like it is amazing what God will do through that presence. Like I can just think back to last week, I had a family member have a medical incident happen to them and she's been in the hospital for a week and a half. And uh, our whole family has taken turns literally just sitting in that room with her and Mm. just existing with her as she's processing this new reality. And like God shows up in so many incredible ways. Like God's the only one that can fix this stuff. But if we're there present with the loved ones he's placed in our lives, it's amazing the ways that he shows up. Mm -hmm. Right. Funerals are are also a more um, universal example for all of us, right? Uh, Because you know who has said the just the perfect thing at a funeral to make somebody feel better? No one. (laughs) And that's what we all worried about. Oh no, what am I going to say? What should I say? What will help the person feel better? Um, I hate to tell you, but having been through funerals myself, including recently, no one really remembers, right? But I do remember who was there. Mm -hmm. I remember Mm -hmm. who showed up. I remember who was willing to be there and sit next to me. Um, And a good enough friend doesn't have to say a word because that speaks volumes in and of itself. That said, I also think that when we show up and when we are present, um, it may be that we are the only one that can recognize that something needs attention. Um, And so without giving advice and without saying what we think someone should do next, I also think it's important to recognize that we may be in a position, maybe even a unique position to be able to recognize that something needs attention, Um, right? So again, to keep going back to the broken arm scenario here, Zach, uh, hey, dude, your arm's broken. I think you should see a doctor, right? Um, And I think sometimes we could be in a position to show up and say, I think maybe some more help would be necessary. Is there, is there a way that I can help beyond being here, beyond bringing some comfort? Can I also assist you in some way? Uh, I also think vulnerability is helpful. Again, Zach, I love how vulnerable you're willing to be, not just to facilitate this as the engineer and and as the host, but as someone uh, who's willing to talk about what this feels like for them. And and that goes a long way of giving people permission to talk about their own struggles as well. Uh, So being willing to talk about a struggle that you have uh, and maybe a way that you found help um, can be helpful if, if done carefully. Thank you for submitting that question. And again, uh, if you've got a question you'd love us to, to tackle here on Through Rough Waters, uh, just head to wcsg.org, click on podcasts and click on Through Rough Waters and you'll see that anonymous subscription right there. Uh, thank you so much for joining us for episode two of Through Rough Waters. Join us in two weeks for our next episode as we continue our series on anxiety. I want to say a big thank you to Kevin and Nicole for joining us and for West Michigan Wellness Group for supporting this podcast with your expertise. Um, if someone is listening to this, Kevin, and says, all right, I know I need to go talk to someone. How do they start that process with you guys at West Michigan Wellness Group? Yeah. First, remember, we love to help. This is this is why we're here. This is why we're here at this podcast. This is why we show up and what makes us um, get in the office every day, right? So uh, please do reach out. Please do reach out for yourself uh, or on the behalf of, of someone else. You can find us online at westmichiganwellnessgroup.com. You can always also call our general information number at 616-611-87. And uh, we would be happy to talk with you and find out what's going on, find out how to match you up with the best fit for one of our counselors uh, in one of our uh, offices and see how we can support you from there. 
Yeah, and we'll also have all that information that Kevin just shared down in the show notes. And it's also linked uh, at wcsd.org. Again, as I said, next episode, we'll continue our series on anxiety. And next episode, we're going to focus on what anxiety looks like for kids middle school aged and younger. And now if you hear that and you're someone like me in my 30s with no kids, I'm like, okay, well, this episode has absolutely nothing to do with me. I'm going to skip it. I'm going to ask you, please don't, because you probably know someone who has a kid in that age range. And speaking for me personally, as I I kind of unpacked where all of my mental health issues came from. It all started in elementary school. So you might learn some things about yourself in this next episode that may put you on that journey. So we hope to see you in two weeks with episode three through rough waters. Uh, as we end today, Kevin, would you uh, end us in prayer? God, we come before you as your children created by you, created in your image and created in such a mysterious, uh, but fascinating way, Lord, you've given us these different um, systems and these processes, these parts of our body, Lord, that uh, we can learn from and that we can learn to respond to. And we thank you that your grace gives us permission to be curious and to notice and to learn and quite frankly, to, to get better at how we navigate life. We, we praise you for giving us the ability to do that and not to stay stuck where we are. We also thank you, Lord, because of your unsurpassed wisdom and your presence and uh, your eternal nature, Lord, that we can ultimately rest in the satisfaction of knowing that you are there, you are present, you can't go anywhere, um, and you can't cease to exist, Lord. And so we just thank you that when all else fails, we can find hope in that and that we can find comfort in you as a personal God who cares about these things and who hopes to see us redeemed. And uh, ultimately, we pray, Lord, that that redemption will come here on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, bless all of our efforts in the meantime as we seek to do your work and to do your will. And uh, we thank you for the opportunity to be here with everyone today. Amen.